This morning is about my encouragement of you along those lines. Uh, if I said to you, hey, we're going we're gonna to talk about worship this morning and we're going to go to the most obvious book in which you can talk about worship. Uh, what book would that be, do you think? Psalms. Very good. A. Okay. Um, now, if you were going to go to Psalms and you were going to talk about worship and you were going to look at the Psalter, how do you think that the Psalter would begin a book of Psalms that is essentially about the nature of worship? How do you think he would begin? What would he do? Well, that is what we are going to look at this morning. And um, I hope that it is encouraging. I feel certain that it will be convicting. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother, who are here, they are here with us this morning. It is a great privilege for me to have them here. They've been here a couple of times, but um, they're here this weekend. And, and uh, my grandfather, I didn't tell him I was going to relay this story. Um, but he, he, said, uh, he said, now listen, there's this story about a little church, a little backwoods church, and there's a guest preacher and the preacher comes, and, and uh, he's ready to preach, but nobody shows up except this one young man. He says, now, young man, I'm going to leave it up to you whether I preach this morning or not. It's just me and you. So if, you know, I'll leave it up to you as to what you want to do. And he said, sir, when I go out in the morning to feed my cattle, I go out to feed them. And if just one comes, then I feed him what he needs. And he said, so be it, young man. I'm going to preach. And so he starts preaching and preaches and preaches and preaches. And he gets done, and the young man comes up to him and says, Now listen, I told you that when I get up in the morning and I go to feed my cattle, if just one comes, I give him what he needs. I did not say I unload the whole thing on him. <laughs> and he said, Now don't you unload the whole thing on me. That's my grandfather speaking to me, by the way. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you're going to feel like I've unloaded the whole thing on you or not, but I want you to remember I hadn't unloaded anything. I'm just communicating what the psalmist says. And so here we go. Psalm 1. How's it start off? And here it is. Blessed is the man... Blessed, that word literally means happy. Happy is the man is how that could be uh, uh, translated. Happy is the man. But I want you to know, and I want you to, I'm going to address this. Just, I'm going to try not to make this some type of uh, uh, soapbox, although it really could be. Uh, but that is not what this is for. And I try very hard uh, to not abuse the authority that I have to stand up in front of you. But I want you to know this truth for sure that is reiterated later in this psalm. Blessed, happy is the man does not have to do with anything that the man has. It has to do with who the man is. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. This is about a status an, an internal status, not an external gift or means. It's something that is within that is within him. Happy is the man. 
the way the Hebrew literature would have us intend to read this is, yes, there is a plurality with regards to the man who's the focus here. There's this man. And, and there is a plurality under which we can read this and apply it to us and put ourselves in the place of the man. But Hebrew literature is very uh, concrete. It uses concrete evidence, uh, concrete analogies all the time. And it wants you to see a man, a specific man, a specific type of man. It's very consistent with Old Testament wisdom literature. And he wants you to know uh, that the man is happy because he is one who refuses something for something else. That's what he does. Now keep in mind the context again. We're talking about the Psalter, who's ta- who is the beginning of the Psalms, which is the book about worship. What does he want to establish that is going to be a theme that runs throughout the Psalms in every last one of them? And this is what he's doing. Happy is the man who refuses something for something else. And he says, what is it that he refuses? And he, and he moves on, still in verse 1. And he said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so I want you to see I want you to see six things and how they're related. And here's the first three. Walks, stands, and sits. And those three things are related to the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And so here's how you would break that down. Here's how those are put together. You walk not in the counsel of the wicked. You stand, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor do you sit in the seat of scoffers. Now these wicked, there is most writers think there's there's level of intimate involvement in the idea of walk stand and sit walk has this idea of movement involved it's kind of an in passing type of deal if you're walking you're moving you're you're it's an in passing thing you by nature if you walk past something and you see something that's worth catching your attention you might stop to take a look at it so the stopping the standing is the idea of passing by and taking a deeper look. Well, when you go from stand to sit, it means you have taken a deeper look, and what you want to do is you want to take in what you are taking a deeper look at. So there's this progression, this very real progression that is intended, the walking, the standing, and the sitting. And whatever it is, they're getting deeper into it. And now you look at the three terms that are the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, and most think the wicked and the sinner are applying basically to the same thing. These are those who have negated the covenant of God, and therefore they have refused to bend their life accordingly. Those who have negated the covenant of God, and I'll tell you, you'll, you'll see where I get that language in a second. They've negated the covenant of God, and they have refused to bend their life accordingly. The wicked and the sinner are regarded as those outside of His covenant grace and forgiveness. They have a general disregard for God because they do not know Him. The wicked and the sinner. They have a general disregard for God because they do not know Him. The tricky thing about the wicked and the sinner is they were otherwise could be very good people. Their categorization of wicked and sinner is based on one thing. They do not know God. Otherwise, we know nothing about the wicked and the sinner and their character. They could otherwise be very good people. 
That's very tricky. How many of us would intentionally walk by and decide to stop and stand and take in something that was so obviously wicked or against God? Not many. But many of us would, not knowing the case. That's the idea. But the Psalter moves to the idea of a man who walks and stands that is being influenced by somebody who is a wicked, who is wicked or sinner, meaning they, are, they do not know God, their lives are not controlled by God, they are not bending their lives to His will, where a man who is being influenced by them to a man who is sitting with a scoffer. And a scoffer is someone who not only disregards God with his lifestyle, but he openly, unapologetically, speaks against God. It's the idea of someone who would not only speak against God, but even seek to, to, to um, navigate his life in some ways that would intentionally thumb his nose at God. Not only is there not a God, I am going to do the opposite of what I understand a God would have me do if there were one, just to prove that there's not. Watch this, a scoffer, or somebody who is actively, proactively speaking against God. It's the idea that we see in 2 Peter 3. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Peter... You talk about this coming of Jesus who is going to set everything right and this judgment that all men will face when he comes. Tell me, where is he? And about how long have we been waiting for him? You fool. To wait on God. Where is he? All things are the same as they've always been. And yet you speak of this coming conclusion to all things. That's the idea. There is a, uh, some of you have maybe heard this quote, but the Russian astronaut, Yerman, and uh, forgive me for my uh, Russian, I'm not up on it. Uh, his last name is, uh, I'm going to say, Titoy. It's T-I-T-O-Y. That's probably miserable. Uh, I tried to get the pronunciation on my computer, and I couldn't get it to work. Uh, so it's a uh, Russian astronaut. I should have just stopped it there. He said this, Some people say there is a God out there, but in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and didn't see him. I saw no God nor angels. The rocket, however, was made by our own people. I don't believe in God. I believe in man, his strength. His possibilities. His reason. Do you see what the astronaut has done there? He has not just passively lived his life in disregard of God, but he has intentionally said there is no God. And he has supplanted God with something else. Man. He has, he has put something else in his place. I looked up, I have a dictionary of illustrations. It's, it's called 7,700 and something so biblical illustrations. 
And every now and then I will look at that. And one of the two examples or analogies that the Encyclopedia of Illustrations gave with regards to the scoffer was an atheist and an evolutionist. Both of which not only deny proactively deny not only deny but proactively proclaim the absence of God and supplant him with another explanation. And that is what the man who is happy is to forego. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. So, now that we know what we are not supposed to be influenced by, how do we not be influenced by them and what are we to be influenced by? And there is a contrast, as contrasts are so common in Scripture, but specifically in Psalms. And this is verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. At the time that the psalm is written, the law is referring to the Torah, the Pentateuch. It's referring to the law as the Israelites would know it. But I want you to know, in context of you and I, we can take that word and and base it on the fullness of our Scripture because we know that the law is a revelation of who God is and then who we are in light of who God is and then how we are supposed to live in light of those two things. That's what the law was intended, to to reveal God, to reveal us, and reveal the nature between the two. As Scripture is, as Jesus comes, he says, I'm not here to take away the law, law, I'm here to fulfill it. And therefore, Jesus is the completeness and the fulfillment of the law of which our New Testament Scriptures speak of. And so, very uh, validly, we take this and we go, this can now be seen as the fullness of Scripture. As it relates to the person of of Jesus Christ as he is the fulfillment of what the law was intended to do. Reveal God, reveal man, reveal the nature of the two and how they work together. That's what we're talking about. But I want you to notice that he says the opposite or the contrast is to delight in the law of God. That means to take great pleasure in, to be pleased greatly. If you take that word as a noun, you're going to get synonyms such as pleasure, enjoyment, joy, love. The contrasting words, I want you to hear those. Now if you take delight and you give those synonyms to it, pleasure, enjoyment, fruition, joy, love, you get the contrasting words that are abhorrence, hate, dislike, distaste. Out of all those, here's the two that shake me the most. Discontent, dissatisfaction. Discontent, dissatisfaction remember the righteous man or the man that is happy delights in the law of the lord 
I am taking the law and I am using the fullness of Scripture as substitute for that. And I am saying the man of God, the man who is happy, delights in the Word revealed by God. Scripture. He delights in it. About three or four weeks ago, I had decided to do Psalm 1 on this day because I did not get a chance to do kind of my typical New Year's address to you. For We had a, a guest speaker. And a few days ago, on the 17th, I ran across John Piper speaking at the Passion Conference. Some of you are familiar with that. And this was his year's, uh, this year, his uh, talk at the Passion Conference was on delighting. And so this is what he said. And he's talking about the essence of loving is delighting. That's the premise. The essence of loving is not doing. The essence of loving is delighting when God is the object. If you lay gold in the dust, the Almighty will be your gold. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Pause. That is a passage from Job 22 when Job is in the crux, in the heat of feeling loss of his family, his material blessings, and his health in the conversation with his friends. And the idea is that in the dust, in his trial, in his hurt, in his wounds, in the midst of losing every tangible thing except at the moment his wife, which he probably wanted to lose, because she's over there going, hey, curse God and die, Job. It'll just be better off for all of us. If you lay gold in the dust, it's still gold. The Almighty will be your gold, it says. And then Piper goes on, loving God is not first working for God. Somebody right now, he says, will be quoting in your head, what about John 14, 15? John 14, 15 is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, he says, what about it? It's massively important to see that he is distinguishing the two. If you do the one, you will do the other. They're not the same. If you love me, you'll do, but doing is not that. The loving in the context of John 14, 15, if you love me. The delighting in the context of Psalm 1 is if you delight in the law is the root it's the source. It's the place with which we come to God. And then the keeping of the commandment, and as we're about to see, the meditating on the Scriptures is the fruit. But the loving and the delighting is the root. The keeping and the, and the meditating is the fruit. But they are not the same. One precedes the other. He goes on to say, maybe that's why in the list of heart, soul, mind, and strength, in every time that it occurs in the gospel, heart is first, because heart is not an organ of performance. It is an organ of preference. 
The heart prefers, and then we do stuff in according with our preferences. The first commandment is loving with all of your preference, all of your heart, all of your preference. Prefer Him above everything. Let Him be your gold, your silver, your everything, and it will change your doings. But if you try to get that reversed and do because you can't conceive of delighting or enjoying or preferring or treasuring, then you will not be a Christian because that is not Christianity. This same idea of John 14, 15 is here. Delight. Don't, don't walk and stand and sit, but delight in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. Guys, this is the setup for all of Psalms. The Psalter starts here. He is distinguishing the righteous man from the wicked man. You'll see it in a minute, but says it's all based on delighting in the law of God and then meditating on it day and night. Preferring it and then having your action come from your preference. What is my preference? The Lord. Where is the Lord? Where is He revealed? More than anywhere, I can say with great confidence, more than anywhere, God is revealed in His Word. It is His, Scripture says that Scripture is His breath. No, 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 Michael, it's His creation. Really? He spoke that into being. What came first? His creation or His Word? His Word. Look what happens to the man who does these things because there is a consequence. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on His law He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that He does He prospers. He is like a tree. A tree is a very formidable object. It is not easily missed. It certainly is not obscure in any landscape. It is a significant part of the landscape in just about any landscape you can dream of. And it is a tree that has been planted by streams of water. It is planted in the very place to receive what it needs so that it can grow and mature and provide. How do I know? Because he is like a tree. This is a man, by the way, who is like a tree who is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Because when a man, when a tree is planted by the streams of water, it yields fruit. When a man delights and meditates on the law of God day and night, he yields fruit. For what reason does a mature tree who gets the sustenance that it needs produces its fruit? For itself? Does the apple tree produce apples so that it then can consume its own apples? Ever seen a tree eat its own apples? Anybody? 
Probably not. Let's not just pick on the apple tree. Choose anyone you want to. Have you ever seen one consume its own fruit? No. For what reason does the fruit-bearing tree produce fruit? For whom? Anybody who needs nourishment that the fruit provides. Anybody that is hungry. That is the production, the reason for the production of the fruit with which the tree is intended. It doesn't produce fruit for itself. It produces fruit because that's what it's created to do. That's, that's its design. That's how God made it produce fruit. Why? For somebody else to partake of. Do you see what the Psalter's doing? Do you see the analogy? In this analogy, what causes a man to produce, to be like the tree and produce fruit? It's the delighting in and the meditating on the law of God. In so doing, its leaf does not wither because a withering leaf is a sign of fruitlessness, uselessness, death. But that is not happening Because there is fruit. Psalm 92 says this. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. Man, that's so significant. They are ever full of sap and green Listen to verse 15, read it and don't forget. So to declare that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock and that there is no unrighteousness in him. What does the fruit bearing tree do in Psalm 92? Gives testimony to the righteousness of God. Not look at my fruit, how awesome am I? Look at my fruit, how good is God? His righteousness has only caused me to do what He has intended for me to do. It's His righteousness. It's His goodness. It's His intention. By the grace of God, therefore go I. Right? It is a testimony unto God. Don't forget that in all He does, He prospers. What does prosper mean? It literally means to thrive. To thrive means to make a steady and favorable progress or success. Steady or favorable progress or success. The question is, progress or success in what? Obviously, Psalm 92, bearing fruit. Why? So that I may provide what God has intended me to provide for the sake of others and to a testimony to the righteousness of God. Those two things. Psalm 1, Psalm 92, to the testimony 
of the righteousness of God and for the sake of those who might pass by of which I do not know and need what I have to offer. Why? Because I am awesome. No. Because I have delighted in and meditated on the thing that gives me sustenance and the source of my fruit bearing, which is the law of God, the very streams of water that my roots seep in and cause me to grow. This is the temptation for a um, a, a long-winded discourse in some deep convictions and opinions that I have, I will just say this. How dare you or any man dilute the prosperity that God gives to material blessing? How dare you? And if you do, you are in significant danger of betraying the goodness of God and the gospel. It is not about that. That is not what prosper means. Prosper is in reference to bearing fruit. Not gaining some type of earthly, physical, or material blessing. It's not here. In order to clarify that in your head, in this context, to say that the man will prosper if he delights and meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, you have to be able to provide to define prosperity in this sense in a way that it would relate to everyone across the board. It has to be defined that way. Otherwise, you leave out the majority of the world. Prosperity is not within their reach. It's not within their gain. There are people who are born poor and will die that way. There are people who are born poor and will die because they are. For lack of sustenance. The Word of God Circle, it just, it, 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 it's beyond all of that. Trivial things that we can't understand and can't fully reconcile. Let's just admit that, by the way. How do you fully reconcile that? I don't know. If you can, I would be willing to have lunch with you and let you teach me. I can't. I don't know how to do that. I just know that the Word of God encompasses everybody for all time past, present, and future. And if he says that everything that a man does will prosper, if he delights and meditates on the law of God day and night, then that is what I say will happen. And that prosperity will obviously be defined in ways that I can't possibly fathom, and they'll be better than any ways I could have defined it in my wildest imaginations. Look at the contrast again in verse 4. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Meaning the wicked do not have the same opportunity to prosper because everything they do, no matter what, 
the wicked, meaning the man who is not under the, the forgiveness and the grace of God. He does not know God. It does not matter what he does. It does not matter what he produces. It does not matter what he does for anybody. It will never be beneficial for anybody or amount to anything. It will be like chaff that the wind drives away. Literally, everything that he does will be blown away. Blown away. The opposite is true. You can do the grandest things without God and they mean nothing. Do the smallest with Him and it affects eternity. It's an oxymoron, but that shouldn't be surprising. Everything in Scripture is. The core of this contrast and the focus of the very first psalm, the book of worship, is to point to the man or woman who worships by delighting in God and meditating on His Word. At the beginning of every year, I have stood before you in some way and encouraged you to get into the Word of God on a personal level. Every year. I am doing it again this year. And I am saying to you that group Bible studies are fantastic and maybe even the catalyst with which you establish a personal time in God's Word, it was for me at the age of 19. It's a good thing. Listening to sermons of gifted men through websites or blogs is a good and educational thing to do. Coming to church and experience hearing the Word of God in the context of community is a positive, encouraged, and commanded thing to do throughout Scripture. And as you might imagine, I'm on board with that. That's good. But there will never be a substitute. There will never be a life group. There will never be a preacher. There will never be a teacher. There will never be a church community. There will never be anything that will be an adequate substitute for you delighting and meditating on the Word of God. Because there will never be a substitute for His counsel in your life. His counsel. So I stand before you again at the close of a five-year run and hoping for a run that is much longer and I do the same thing. And I want to do it. I want to end this little, um, this, this aspect of our time together by reading you out of a book called The Reversed Thunder. It's about uh, Revelation. But the first part of it is Eugene Peterson writing about the person of John and categorizing John in a couple of different ways. And this is the way and what he says about John and God with regards to John the theologian. Listen as I close with this. Hang with me. Uh, I'm, I'm, not supposed to read, um, I'm not supposed to read a page worth of material without stopping or explaining it because your attention spans are too short and you're too dumb. That's what the statistics say. I, I'm just telling you. I'm telling you the science. 
So I'm trusting you. Hang in there. It's worth hanging in. St. John is a theologian whose entire mind is saturated with thoughts of God. His whole being staggered by a vision of God. The world-making, salvation-shaping Word of God is heard and pondered and expressed. He is God-intoxicated. God-possessed. God-articulate. He insists that God is more than a blur of longing and other than a monosyllabic curse or blessing, but capable of logos. That is word. Intelligent discourse. John is full of exclamations in relation to God, quite overwhelmed with the experience of Him, but through it all there is logos. God revealed is God known? He is not so complete. Listen, he is not so completely known that he can be predicted. He is not known so thoroughly that there is no more to be known. He is not known. He is not so completely known that he can be predicted, and he is not known so thoroughly that there is no more to be known. So that we can go on now to the next subject. Still, he is known and not unknown. Rational, not irrational. Orderly, not disorderly. Hierarchical, not anarchic. It is of great importance for the Christian believers to have from time to time a reasonable, sane, mature person stand up in their midst and say, God is, and then go on to complete the sentence intelligently. I know that in any given week that is questionable for you. But there are tendencies within us and forces outside us that relentlessly reduce God to a checklist of explanations or a handbook of moral precepts or an economic arrangement or a political expediency or a pleasure boat. God is reduced to what can be measured, used, weighed, gathered, controlled, or felt. Insofar as we accept these reductionist explanations, our lives become bored, depressed, or mean. We live stunted like acorns in a terrarium. But the oak trees need soil and sun and rain and wind. Human life requires God. The theologian offers his mind in the service of saying, God in such a way that God is not reduced or packaged or banalized, but known and contemplated and adored. With the consequence that our lives are not cramped into what we can explain, but exalted in what we worship. The difficulties in such thinking and saying are formidable. The theologian is never able to deliver a finished product. Systematic theology is an oxymoron. There are always loose ends. But even the crumbs from such... But even the crumbs from discourse around such a table 
are more satisfying than a full course offering of lesser subjects. Let me pray for you. Father, would we, not just as individuals, but as a community, grab a hold of the reality that you are, there is nothing worth delighting in more. Father, by your grace, may we be what we are intended to be. Men and women who delight and meditate in the law of God that we may be truly blessed, happy. In the name of Jesus, amen.